I'd love to welcome you to Citizens Climate University, a weekly webinar program of Citizens Climate Lobbies that provides CCL supporters with access to in-depth training opportunities on topics related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Brett Cease, and tonight's topic is the climate benefits in the Inflation Reduction Act. We're gonna join CCL Research Coordinator, Dana Nucitelli for training on the climate benefits in the historic act. Dana is gonna discuss all of the energy and climate items in the bill, how much it will reduce US greenhouse gas emissions, as well as the health benefits of the cleaner air that will result from the bill's provisions. We'll also be sure to review where things stand as of this evening and how you and your community, whether you're tuning in on YouTube or on Zoom can take action to help ensure its passage. So a little bit about our speaker tonight. Dana is an environmental scientist and climate journalist with a master's degree in physics. He's written about climate change since 2010 for a little website you may have heard of called Skeptical Science, one of our favorite resources that we've gone to for years, and The Guardian, as well as Yale Climate uh, Connections. In 2015, Dana published the book Climatology versus Pseudoscience, and he's also authored 10 peer-reviewed climate studies including a 2013 paper that you may have heard of that found a 97% consensus among peer-reviewed climate science research that humans are the primary cause of global warming. Dana's joined CCL staff last year after nine years as a volunteer with the Sacramento chapter. And during that time, he gave dozens of presentations all around California and the larger country about climate change and the impacts that we are witnessing now from wildfires and droughts, as well as policy solutions like carbon fee and dividend. And he's also been one of our leads of the original science policy team, which has now become the wonderful Nerd Corner as well, where we've been dropping a lot of helpful information and research for all of our benefits. So Dana, thank you so much for joining us. If we've done our job well tonight, the agenda is gonna be really straightforward. Dana is gonna provide a quick background, helping all of us catch up because what there is actually a monumental climate bill still possible to pass right now. We've got to find out what's in that bill, how much, how much it's gonna cut emissions, what the health benefits are going to be, what it doesn't touch or accomplish, and then we'll close with taking action before making sure that we jump into Q&A. And the floor is yours, Dana. Thank you all so much for joining us. Cool. Thanks, Britt. So I'm really stoked about this one. This is probably going to be my favorite talk I've ever given because it's actually about good news for once. So we've got a climate bill, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. We're going to call it IRA. Uh, so it is called uh, the Inflation Reduction Act because the senators who authored the bill wanted to emphasize its impacts on reducing uh, inflation problems. Uh, so along those lines, uh, Moody's Analytics said that the bill will nudge the economy and inflation in the right direction while meaningfully addressing climate change and reducing our budget deficits. Uh, the Center for a Responsible Federal Budget said we expect the bill to very modestly reduce inflationary pressures in the near term and lowering, lower the risk of persistent inflation over time. So just on this point really quickly, um, the reason it reduces inflation in the short term is because uh, the bill kind of raises corporate taxes and closes loopholes to generate more revenue than it spends. And so basically it's taking a bit of money out of the economy and thus cools down the economy and thus slightly reduces inflation in the near term. And in the long term, it reduces future inflationary concerns because it helps the transition away from fossil fuels towards cleaner uh, uh, sources of energy that have uh, more stable prices than fossil fuels do. And fossil fuels are often 
very large contributors when we have inflationary periods. Uh, and so to kind of illustrate that point, I got a quick chart here showing uh, this first line in green is the change in electricity prices in the United States by uh, change uh, by percentage from the average. Over the past 20 years, you can see it's very flat overall. Uh, it's basically plus or minus 10%, not a whole lot of variation in electricity prices. Uh, conversely, you can see gasoline prices on the same chart here in, in brown. So you can see a lot of variation in gasoline uh, prices, a lot of spikes up and down um, as we get lots of different uh, you know, factors impacting these unstable gasoline prices. Uh, and then, of course, you can also see the same thing with natural gas here in black, a lot of up and down, very similar variations. So they're very much less stable than electricity prices are. And so if we can transition you know, vehicles away from gasoline to electricity and, you know, transition our, our building heating from fossil fuels to electric heat pumps and things like that. The more we can trans transition away from fossil fuels and their unstable prices towards electricity and their stable prices, the less we will have to worry about uh, inflation as much in the future. So it's very good for inflation in the long term. So let's get to the more important stuff for us, the climate stuff and what's in there. And there is a whole lot of climate stuff in the bill. Uh, roughly speaking, about $385 billion. Um, the Senate Democrats estimated about $369 billion, but the number is a little uncertain because it depends on like how many companies apply, apply for the tax credits and the individuals apply for tax credits and things like that. So the Center for a, a Responsible Federal Budget estimated $385 billion, so I'm going to go with that number. Uh, but it's in that ballpark. Uh, it's by far the largest ever federal climate package that we will have passed once we pass it, fingers crossed, um, by like more than a factor of three. It's also more we kept hearing as you know this year was kind of building up, we kept hearing maybe it'll be $300 billion. And then it ended up being like $385 billion. So we actually got more than we expected, which is for us being accustomed to disappointment in the climate community. That was really great. So some of the stuff that's in there, it's got $15 billion for EV tax credits, uh, a $7,500 tax credit for new EVs and $4,000 for used EVs. Uh, but there are a bunch of caveats and restrictions there. So uh, only individuals whose maximum income is less than $150,000 can qualify for the new tax credits, the new car tax credits. Uh, your, in, your income has to be less than $75,000 to qualify for the used tax credits. Uh, the EV has to be less than $80,000 for new SUVs, pickups, or vans, less than $55,000 for new cars, electric cars, and uh, less than $25,000 for any used EVs. Um, so basically trying not to subsidize like the really high-end, super fancy electric cars and just the more uh, modest electric cars. But there are now plenty of those electric cars. The prices are coming down really fast and plenty of models that will qualify. There are a couple of tricky uh, restrictions in there about the percentage of the battery components and the minerals in the components that have to be from the United States or a free trade partner, kind of between 40 to 50 to 100% increasing over time, uh, which is tricky because like we don't have those domestic supply chains yet. Like a lot of our batteries and components come from like China and Russia and other countries that we don't have free trade agreements with. And so that's kind of a tricky thing. It's also possible that 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 uh, requirement won't make it through the uh, parliamentarian's review. So that's a little bit up in the air right now, uh, but that's the current status. 
And then there is somewhere in the ballpark of $150 billion for clean electricity, production tax credits, and investment tax credits, uh, depending on exactly how you categorize them. But that's kind of the ballpark uh, that I put it into. Uh, these are super important because rene uh, renewable energy developments uh, in recent months and years has really been kind of stalling out for several different reasons because of, you know, supply chain issues because of COVID and uh, things like that, but also because there was this uncertainty around these tax credits because they have been phasing out and like they were all kind of short term, like they got brief extensions and then they kind of started phasing out again. And so there's been this uncertainty, like people trying to invest in these clean energy pro projects, like will this money be available and for tax credits? And so this bill would extend the tax credits 10 more years give all kinds of long-term certainty for these projects. And then really, so that way that would really accelerate the deployment of clean electricity. Um, so you can kind of see that point from this nice chart uh, from, this is from the Princeton repeat team uh, from their analysis of the bill. And so you can see on the left, this is kind of the, our current policy, uh, the investment in uh, energy infrastructure that we would have expected before the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, so you can see pretty flat, not much change uh, in the coming eight years because of this uncertainty about the tax credits. When you include the tax credits in the bill, all of a sudden you see all this, this yellow and blue. This is new kind of deployment of solar and wind that is expected as these projects take advantage of these tax credits being extended and giving them long-term certainty. And you, if you go even further into the future, 2032, 2035, because of this long-term certainty, you see really, really big uh, deployment and installation of wind and solar projects in particular, much, much bigger than if we didn't have this bill in place. So it's very, very important in terms of getting that clean electricity uh, deployed. And then the aspect of the bill that we at CCL are super excited about is a fee on methane pollution. Um, technically, it's, I guess, a charge on methane pollution, and if you want to know the difference uh, and why it's called a charge, you can go to the Nerd Corner, and Rick Knight, my fellow research coordinator, has a nice post about that, but uh, for my purposes, it doesn't really matter, so I'm going to call it a fee on methane. It is the first ever federal fee on climate pollution, on a climate pollutants. So it begins in 2024 at the equivalent of a $36 per ton carbon dioxide uh, equivalent price. In 2025, it goes up to the equivalent of a $48 per ton carbon price. And in 2026 and thereafter, it goes up to the equivalent of a $60 per ton carbon price. Um, that is similar to what was in the, uh, the Build Back Better that was passed by the House of Representatives last year. They just had, they went straight to a $1,500, uh, $60 per ton equivalents uh, immediately. So this one just ramps up a little bit and then it's the same as it would have been in Build Back Better. So it didn't get uh, changed much between then and now. Uh, that price is important because so there was a good paper by the folks at Energy Innovation, which is another good energy modeling group that uh, estimated that 95% of our leaks could be fixed for $40 per ton or less. So as long as you got a carbon price that is more than $40 per ton, then it is uh, gives the financial incentive for the oil and gas industry to fix that. And so we've got a $60 per ton price. And so there's this incentive for the oil and gas industry to fix virtually all of their uh, leaks for that price. That, uh, that uh, methane fee is projected to raise $8 billion in revenue. And uh, in order to fix those leaks, they have to employ people to go out and fix them. So that creates jobs. And then when you're creating jobs, you also give a boost to the economy because you have more people employed spending money. So it's actually good for 
uh, both employment numbers and the economy, as well as projecting, as, as well as uh, creating this revenue uh, from the methane fee. The bill also includes $1.5 billion for uh, methane grant, basically grants to for oil and gas companies to reduce their methane uh, leakage and to monitor for it and to report it. Um, so it's this nice combination of carrots and sticks that they've got the the nice the carrot that they can apply for these grants to help reduce their emissions. Uh, and also it's got the stick that if they're not reducing their emissions, then they have to pay the penalty. And there's this one other aspect that uh, Senator Manchin added from the House passed Build Back Better version that facilities will be exempt from the methane fee if they're in compliance with the EPA methane regulations, with the, which the EPA is in the process of strengthening right now. Uh, so basically we're saying like, if the EPA is okay with you, then we at Congress are okay with you too, which makes perfect sense. But basically the methane fee gives teeth to the EPA methane regulations, because if you're not in compliance with EPA methane regulations, now you have to pay the fee. And so now there's this financial incentive uh, for uh, companies and facilities to meet the EPA methane regulations. And then additionally, the bill has some nice funding for natural climate solutions, which is an area that CCL is expanding into. So we're very excited to see this stuff. Uh, there's about $5 billion in funding for forestry programs, about $2 billion of that for wildfire prevention, which I in California very much appreciate. We definitely need wildfire prevention funding. Uh, $1.5 billion for urban and community forestry grants. So great to see Monday, money for urban trees and urban forests. Very important. A uh, billion dollars for forest conservation. Very important to conserve and preserve existing forests. Uh, $450 million for climate smart management incentives for privately owned forests. So getting folks who own their own forest land to kind of engage in practices that uh, store more carbon in uh, their forested area. Uh, also $100 million for wood innovation grants, which is great because like once you harvest the trees, then there's a question of what to do with that wood, with that uh, material. And if you're using it in a wood product, then it gets the carbon gets stored in that wood product for a long period of time. So like the more good things we can figure out to do with wood products that store the carbon uh, for extended period of time, the better it is for the climate. So that's a really good provision in there too. And then there is over $20 billion for climate smart agriculture and conservation. So money going to various existing programs that send out uh, funding and grants for different things that are good for the environment and the climate in the agriculture and forestry space, including things like agroforestry, uh, silvopasture, which is kind of a new favorite of mine, which is where you plant trees on pasture land because we have a lot of pasture land that could potentially have a lot of trees in kind of the eastern half of the country that could be a very big climate solution. So hopefully going to figure out a way to get some of that money going to silvopasture. Uh, also, quite a bit of it already goes to cover cropping, which is a good way to store carbon in the soil on, um, for on uh, farmland. So that's all good potential natural climate solutions investments programs and money. Then we've got some other good stuff like electrification. We've got $10 billion for consumer home energy rebate programs, uh, which will create rebates and tax incentives for people to get heat pump water heaters, heat pump space heaters, heat pump clothes dryers, stoves are like induction stoves or otherwise electric stoves, insulation improved for their house, better windows to make their homes more energy efficient wiring upgrades like if they if they're electrifying their home and they need to upgrade their panels and their wiring it has money for that which is all very important so that if we can electrify people's homes in this way we can really 
both reduce our energy needs and also our fossil fuel burning directly by buildings. So that's all really great stuff. It's also got $200 million to train contractors in this area of electrification and efficiency, which is very important because like oftentimes contractors won't be familiar with heat pumps. And so like they'll recommend, you know, just install this, you know, natural gas heater instead of a heat pump just because they're not familiar with it. And so they're like potentially dissuading people from electrifying their homes. So the more contractors we get trained in these uh, electrification efficiency methods, the better. And then, of course, we got the post office buying EVs has been very uh, controversial lately. So they've got $3 billion to make the post office buy more EVs, which is really great to see. Uh, there's this green technology accelerator, also known as the National Green Bank, gets $27 billion basically to fund these green projects. Uh, actually, more than half of that goes to environmental justice communities specifically. So that's a really good environmental justice win. And overall, there's oh, about $60 billion in environmental justice priorities in the bill to invest in disadvantaged communities. So the EJ uh, community and advocates really did a great job getting a lot of environmental justice funding in there. There's also lots on domestic manufacturing. Uh, so in the ballpark of $60 billion to encourage us to uh, do more manufacturing of clean energy stuff in the United States. Uh, most of that $40 billion will be tax credits for solar, wind, and batteries, and EVs, and critical minerals to come from the United States, uh, up to $20 billion in loans for companies to build uh, EV manufacturing facilities in the United States. Uh, there's also $2 billion to retool existing car plants so that they can make EVs in the United States. Another $2 billion for our national labs to accelerate their research into breakthrough energy technologies. And $500 million for the Defense Production Act, which the Biden administration is trying to use to encourage more manufacturing of things like heat pumps domestically in the United States as well. And on top of that, so that's like your $385 billion. Uh, in addition to that, there's this $250 billion loan authority for the Department of Energy so that they can send loans to new green companies like startups that are trying to uh, invent really cool new clean technologies. A good example of this was Tesla got a bunch of money from this program. And without that, like we might not have had Tesla. And now Tesla is the biggest uh, EV sales uh, company in the United States. So it's, this program does a lot of good stuff for helping these startup green companies uh, become big potentially. So that's really a really cool provision in the bill. And there's lots more stuff in there. Some of it better than others. There is uh, an extension of this. It's called the 45Q tax credit for carbon sequestration. So it gives companies $85 per ton of carbon dioxide that they capture and store. Uh, permanently or $60 per ton of carbon that they use uh, to pump underground to extract more oil. Uh, there is a production tax credit for nuclear power of $30 billion. Uh, there's an extension of existing biodiesel fuel tax credits, uh, a tax credit now for aviation biofuel. If the, somebody can come with an aviation biofuel that reduces emissions at least 50% from like jet fuel, then they can get a tax credit for that to try to solve that problem of how do we fuel uh, airplanes in a low carbon way. There is a new tax credit for low carbon hydrogen, which doesn't specify if the hydrogen will come from like, you can do it with using clean electricity to use an electrolyzer to split uh, water molecules, or you can use it to, uh, with natural gas, you can get the hydrogen and capture and store the carbon. Uh, it doesn't specify which way to do it, but either way, it's gotta be low carbon hydrogen. Uh, and then Joe Manchin was uh, very, uh, uh, 
very much tried to get this in there. It's the extension of the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund, which is uh, it's a, a tax on coal facilities to pay for black lung costs for the workers that got black lung uh, doing coal mining. So like to see that, like tax coal companies to pay for the health effects of their workers. And so that's a, a billion dollar uh, revenue source that gets put into that, uh, that fund. And then there's provision that a lot of folks have been very concerned about uh, where there's five different uh, oil and gas leasing programs that were uh, rejected initially for environmental concerns are, are going to be okayed. And then there's a provision uh, that basically if you're going to do onshore or offshore solar and wind uh, land leasing, you have to also do offshore or onshore oil and gas leasing. Um, so that's another thing that like it remains to be seen and if, if it'll make it through uh, the parliamentary interview. Um, but in any case, like a lot of people kind of freaked out about that. So I promise I will talk about that more uh, in a little bit here, uh, but we'll come back to that. So first, let's look at the analyses of overall, how much will this package cut uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the United States? Uh, so just for context, uh, in 2005, it's kind of our, the starting point we usually look at. Uh, in 2005, we had 6.6 .6 billion tons or gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent emissions from the United States. Our Paris commitment is to cut that in half by 2030. So we're aiming for 3.3 gigatons by 2030 to meet our Paris commitments. Right now, as of 2021, last year, we were at 5.6 gigatons, so 17% below 2005. So basically, like we're one gigaton below. Uh, 2005, we have 2.3 gigatons to go to get down to that 3.3, and we've got eight years left to do it. So we are making progress going in the right direction, mostly because coal has been uh, replaced by a lot of clean energy. And so we're, um, our emissions have been going down, just not going fast enough. And so that's why this bill is really important to accelerate that uh, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions that we've been having that has not been going fast enough. Uh, so there's three modeling groups, energy modeling groups that have modeled uh, both the business as usual and what the uh, Inflation Reduction Act will get us. So based on current policies, their average, uh, these are Rhodium Group, Energy Innovation, and Princeton Repeat. Uh, the average of their business as usual kind of current policy uh, projections for 2030 is that we will reach about 27% below 2005 by 2030 if this bill doesn't pass. So that would get us to about 4.9 gigatons or so in 2030. Uh, obviously, 27% would leave us almost halfway short of our 50% cuts Paris target. Uh, I also want to note there's a wide range of uncertainty in here because like there's inflation, there's COVID, there's war in Ukraine, there's supply chains, there's all these different things that factor into like oil prices and things like that that give us a lot of uncertainty, even just about this business as usual. So like business as usual could be anywhere from like 22% to 35% below 2005 in 2030, but the best estimate is 27%. And so that was a bunch of numbers. I'm gonna show it uh, in visual form here. So this is our emissions today between 2005 and 2021. You can see, it's, as I said, it's going down slowly, but it's been going down because we've been phasing out coal. And then that's the business as usual. Uh, you can see that wide range of uncertainty, but the, uh, the diamond is our best estimates. Uh, as I mentioned, it would get us to 4.9 gigatons or about 27% below 2005 levels. And then here is the three groups uh, kind of combined estimates for what the Inflation Reduction Act would accomplish. 
Uh, so the average of those is that it would get us down to about four gigatons or about 40% below 2005 by 2030. So, you know, you can see like we were going to be at 27%. Now we're going to be at 40% or so if this bill passes. So like that takes care of a lot of that gap. Like it takes care of more of more than half of the remaining gap between where we would have been and the Paris target. It doesn't get us all the way there, but it gets us much, much closer than we would have been. So that's all very encouraging. So how it accomplishes that, I'm gonna have a little breakdown. It's a very rough breakdown. So like these are not at all precise numbers, uh, but we would get roughly 900 million fewer tons of CO2 equivalents uh, in 2030 under the Inflation Reduction Act as we would have in business as usual. So where does that 900 million tons uh, come from? About a third of it comes from the clean energy tax credits, uh, most of it coming from that deployment of wind and solar that we saw earlier. About a quarter of it comes from electric vehicle tax credits and incentives, putting all those EVs out on the road, uh, displacing the gasoline powered vehicles, that's really big. Uh, the methane regulations and the methane fee combined are somewhere on the order of 15%, kind of the third biggest chunk of that. So the methane fee uh, is very important. Uh, industrial carbon capturers, the carbon capture, uh, capture and sequestration stuff, you know, 11, 10, 11% of it, a uh, fairly sized big chunk. Natural climate solutions are about the same, about 100 million, million tons, about 11%. Uh, and then building electrification and efficiency is about another 5%. So these are our rough estimates, but it kind of gives you an idea what the biggest chunks are. So it's mostly clean electricity, clean energy, EVs, the methane fee, carbon capture, natural solutions, and then a little bit from uh, things like heat pumps and insulation and uh, weatherization of, of, of homes. So there's lots of other good benefits to this bill. This is from the energy innovation analysis. They estimate that it would create 1.5 million more jobs in 2030 uh, as if the, as compared to if the bill wasn't in place. Uh, so things like all this domestic manufacturing, uh, construction jobs to deploy all these solar panels and wind turbines, so a lot of jobs like that. Uh, so 1.5 million jobs. And then also, again, if you're creating a bunch of new jobs, you're also giving a nice boost to the economy. So like GDP goes up a little bit too. And then another really nice benefit is that household energy costs come down. So this is a nice chart from the Rhodium reports. Uh, and you can see the kind of their central estimate here is that uh, in 2030, average household energy costs will be about $1,000 less per year than they were in 2021. Uh, you can see most of that is this green here. That's mobility, meaning that people buying, uh, people buying EVs and replacing their gasoline-powered cars because EVs are much cheaper to fuel because they're very efficient and they use electricity, which again has very stable prices, unlike gasoline-powered car cars, which are very inefficient and use gasoline that can often be very expensive. So you save a whole bunch of money uh, if, you if we can get people to switch to EVs. And you also get some nice savings from electricity becoming a little bit cheaper and homes becoming more efficient because of this you know, weatherization and switching to heat pumps and things like that. So overall, that's a really, really nice benefit uh, of this bill that household energy costs are gonna go way, way down. And then there are also health and agricultural, we call them co-benefits, uh, other benefits of the bill. Um, so kind of a leader on this uh, topic is Drew Shindell, who used to be a climate modeler for NASA, and now he's at uh, Duke University, and he switched to kind of uh, air pollution health impacts uh, uh, modeling. And he's kind of like the leader in this field. Like his research has shown that we had previously been significantly underestimating the health benefits of reducing air pollution by phasing out fossil fuels. 
and he's got a nice online tool that kind of shows like if we reduce our uh, greenhouse gas emissions and reduce fossil fuels, how it also benefits us in terms of health and agricultural and economic, uh, economic benefits and things like that. So I used this tool and I talked to him to make sure I was doing things right and got some numbers. So these are the benefits uh, over cumulatively over the next eight years from passing the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, because of the air pollution avoided by phasing out these fossil fuel sources, we would avoid about 180,000 premature deaths in the United States over those eight years cumulatively. You can put a dollar value on that uh, by asking people how much uh, they would pay to reduce their risk of death, premature death in a given year, uh, which is exactly what you're doing. You're, if you're phasing out air pollution, you're reducing people's risk of premature death in a given year. Um, so people put a very high value on that. I know I do because I really don't want to die a premature death. And so I would certainly pay money to uh, prevent that if I could. And so if you do that calculation, the value that Americans would put on that uh, reduced risk of premature death is about $1.9 trillion over the next eight years. That is not like a direct benefit to the economy. It's not going to boost GDP. It's just that's how much value people put on this reduced uh, risk of premature death. So personally, I focus on just the number. It would avoid 180,000 premature deaths uh, due to the cleaner air. And really, that's priceless, is you know, preventing people from dying early. But there are also direct economic benefits. So for example, when people are breathing cleaner air, they are healthier. They lose fewer workdays uh, due to sickness. And so the estimate is that we would lose 10 million fewer workdays over the next eight uh, years due to the cleaner air, and that would be worth about $2 billion to the US economy uh, that prevented lost workdays. Uh, dementia has also been linked to air pollution, and so the estimate is that we'd have 60,000 fewer incidents of dementia over the next eight years in the United States. Uh, ozone pollution from fossil fuels also like reduces crop yields, and so if we look at kind of our main uh, our main crops, our staple crops, uh, we would increase wheat production by 75 million bushels, that would be worth $440 million. Corn production by 250 million bushels, worth about a billion dollars. And soybean production by about the same amount, worth about $2.7 billion. So you're looking at about $4 billion worth of benefits from increased crop yields to our agricultural industry. So all kinds of great benefits, not only just like, I mean, like slowing the climate crisis is itself a huge benefit, but you also get these great uh, health benefits, people living longer, healthier lives, you know, getting fewer instances of dementia, you know, losing fewer work days, these better agricultural yields, all these great economic and health and prosperity benefits in addition to the climate benefits. So it's really, really lots of great stuff coming from this bill. It's also worth mentioning that these, uh, Fossil fuel pollution sources tend to be located uh, near disadvantaged communities. And so this is like another environmental justice benefit if we're phasing out these uh, pollution sources that tend to be concentrated and have the biggest impact in disadvantaged communities. That's also where we see the biggest health benefits. So I promised I would come back to the oil and gas leases. So let's do that. Um, there's been a lot of kind of overheated rhetoric on this that we kind of consider pretty irresponsible. So like people saying that you know, the oil and gas leases are poison pills, it's a terrible deal, the math doesn't work, it's game over for the climate, uh, all the gains are a moot point if we do these oil and gas leases. So like these are all kind of knee-jerk reactions. Like I understand we don't want to expand oil and gas leases, 
but it's also really important to do like a quantitative analysis to compare like the costs and benefits of these things and like what's bigger than what else. Like you can't just say like, oh, it's going to wipe everything out without actually doing the analysis first. So that's, I think it's kind of irresponsible to say like, oh, it's going to wipe everything out with actually, without actually looking qualitative, quantitatively to see if it's going to wipe out the benefits because there are groups that did that. So let's look at the actual analyses of modeling groups who looked at these impacts. One of them is the National Resource Defense Council, uh, NRDC. Uh, they looked at it with their own internal modeling and said that uh, the benefits of the emissions reduced from the good stuff in the bill would be something in the ballpark of 10 times bigger than the emissions created by these oil and gas leases. Uh, Energy Innovation used their model. Theirs was even more optimistic. They said 24 times more emissions reductions by the good stuff than emissions created by the oil and gas leases, uh, which they said would be less than 15 million tons of carbon dioxide added by the oil and gas leases compared to, we're talking about 900 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent reduced by the good stuff in the bill. Uh, and then Princeton, uh, Jesse Jenkins said very similar, also less than 15 million tons of carbon dioxide, which actually for them, as he said, it's within their rounding error because we saw those big uncertainty bars uh, in the amount of emissions reduced. So like 15 million tons is like, it's like, almost insignificant compared to these uh, emissions reductions uh, by the good stuff in the bill. So, I mean, I like there are certainly concerns with expanding oil and gas leases, but you also have to bear in mind that like the oil and gas industry is sitting on thousands of unused oil and gas leases and like just offering the leases for auction doesn't necessarily mean they're even going to purchase them or even develop them in the future. Um, so we're just kind of offering them up, but if we can decrease demand, which is exactly what the uh, things in this bill does by, you know, transitioning away from fossil fuels you know, to electric cars, to heat pumps, things like that, you decrease demand, that decreases the incentive for oil and gas companies to even buy or develop these, these uh, potential leases. Um, so if we can really crush down the demand, that has a big effect on the supply that will offset a lot of these in increase in offered leases. So uh, let's look at some other stuff. Data for Progress did a nice poll about what people think about the bill, uh, asking if they support or oppose it. You can see among all voters, 73% support the bill, 22% oppose it. Uh, among Democrats, which that's kind of the most important constituency because like it's is in budget reconciliation, it's gonna be all Democrats voting for it. So we wanna know what Democratic voters think. 95% of Democratic voters support it, 3% of Democratic voters oppose it. So if you're contracting your Democratic members of Congress and asking them to vote for the bill, you might want to mention that 95% of their constituents support the bill. Uh, similarly, they were asked, uh, would the people being contacted for the poll be more likely to support or less likely to support a candidate who supports the Inflation Reduction Act? 64% said they would be more likely, 25% said less likely among Democrats, 91%. Of Democrats said they would be more likely to support a candidate who uh, is in favor of this bill. So that's another nice thing to mention to your uh, members of Congress who are going to potentially be up for a vote in a few months that 91% of their constituents want them to vote for the bill. 61% of independents also, and even like Republicans are pretty split. They don't feel very strongly about it, but most importantly uh, for the Democratic members of Congress, 91% uh, are more likely to vote for them if they support the bill. So I have said a lot of great stuff about this bill because I think it is awesome, but of course it doesn't do everything we need. Uh, it leaves us about 10% shy of our 2030 Paris commitment, about 700 million tons. 
So there is still more we need to do to close that gap. The good news is we still have time. We've got those eight years left to close that gap with additional policies, which we at CCL and other climate advocacy groups will be working very hard to do, but it does get us closer. Uh, it's great that it has a methane fee, uh, but it doesn't have a carbon fee, which is very important, especially to us in CCL. So uh, at least the methane fee is kind of set a precedent to have a national price on a climate pollutants that we will be encouraging uh, members of Congress to extend to carbon dioxide. Um, so we still would be working on that, of course. Uh, and then like, we, not, we can't stop in 2030, we have a 2050 commitment to reach net zero emissions. So if we are successful in meeting our 2030 commitment, that gets to 50% emissions reductions, we have to get the other 50% in the next 20 years. Uh, so we get uh, part of the way there, but we still got a lot more work to do. Uh, to get to that net zero in 2050. Additionally, there's also this issue that uh, the European Union uh, is working on a carbon border adjustment. Other countries are thinking about it too. That will impose a fee from countries that don't have a carbon price on their products coming across their border. And so we have to figure out a way to address that in the United States with a carbon price and or some kind of carbon border adjustments uh, legislation of our own. So that is still something we need to work on in the next year or two because Europe is moving very fast on that. But in the meantime, it's very, very important that we pass this bill for all the reasons I outlined here. Um, it's looking pretty good right now. Christian Cinema has some issues that look like they're hopefully resolvable. We have to see if the parliamentarian scrubs out too much stuff. But right now it's looking good. Senator Schumer uh, Senator Schumer has planned to bring the bill up for up to the floor of the Senate on Saturday afternoon. So he's very optimistic uh, that they'll be able to resolve all their issues and get it to a vote very, very quickly. So it's very important that we contact our Democratic members of Congress right now to encourage them to support the bill when it comes up to a vote, which you can do by going to cclusa.org action which makes it very easy to do to contact your Democratic uh, representatives. If you don't have Democratic representatives, we would encourage you to contact your friends and family who do. Tell them to go to cclusa.org action and contact their representatives, their Democratic representatives. You can see like we're targeting 7,500 uh, calls uh, contacts. We're almost up to 6,000, so we're making good progress. Uh, you might ask like if you are confident that your member of Congress, your representative is going to vote for it, like why would I bother to contact them? Um, so I would say like there are a variety of different reasons. One, because they are hearing from some climate advocates negative things about the bill. So we want to make sure they hear more positive things about the bill. Also, we very much appreciate that they have like made sure that the climate stuff has stayed alive into reconciliation over the last year, despite all the other stuff that fell out of the bill. Like they have made climate a priority and we want to let them know we appreciate that. And that was very important to us. And in the future, as they work on future climate stuff, we want them to know that we have their backs, we support them, and we want them to prioritize the climate stuff. So please do contact your members of Congress, uh, your Democratic senators, your Democratic representatives, tell your friends to do it, make sure they know that we appreciate that, that this is important to us, and that they need to get this thing over the finish line. Thank you so much, Dan. A huge round of applause from all 100 plus of us tuning in. This is just so information rich. It was like a seven layer chocolate cake I just consumed for the last half hour plus. We're so grateful for all of that caloric intake and dense information. A little reminder for everyone that those websites Dana talked about, 
the cclusa.org slash action not only have the scripts and this little slider bar that shows the progress we're making, uh, but it also has some really helpful FAQs. So if you're curious about anything that, uh, you know, following up on this, feel free to send your family, your friends there. If you are in an area that doesn't have democratic representation right now, feel free to go to that spread the word page. And there's a lot of great information on social to share as well. And if you're tabling or doing grassroots outreach, we've got you covered there too. We've got some updated flyers. I wanted to flag all of that's available. In the Thank you so much for making time to help all of us. If you have any questions after tonight, as well as Dana's slides, if you'd like to use any of these in your own local presentations and outreach that you're doing in your communities, we can't do enough of it right now. Let's educate our communities. Let's get them pumped up. Let's make sure this gets over the finish line and get active in making this final stand for what we've been waiting for for over a year. So stay safe, everyone. Thank you so much for all you do for CCL. And take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.